Section 2 of The Afghan Wars, 1839-1842 and 1878-1880, Part 2. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Afghan Wars, 1839-1842 and 1878-1880, Part 2, by Archibald Forbes. Chapter 2. The Opening of the Second Campaign There were many who mistrusted the stability of the Treaty of Gundamuk. Perhaps in his heart Sir Louis Cavanari may have had his misgivings, for he was gifted with shrewd insight, and no man knew the Afghan nature better. But outwardly, in his quiet, resolute manner, he professed the fullest confidence. Cavanari was a remarkable man. Italian and Irish blood commingled in his veins. Both strains carry the attributes of vivacity and restlessness, but Cavanari, to the superficial observer, appeared as phlegmatic as he was habitually taciturn. This sententious imperturbability was only on the surface. Whether it was a natural characteristic or an acquired manner is not easy to decide. Below the surface of measured reticent composure, there lay a temperament of ardent enthusiasm and not less ardent ambition. In subtlety, he was a match for the wireless Oriental, whom face to face he dominated with a placid, dauntless masterfulness that was all his own. The wild hill tribes among whom he went about escortless carrying his life continually in his hand, recognized the complex strength of his personal sway, and feared at once and loved the quiet, firm man, the flash of whose eye was sometimes ominous, but who could cow the fiercest hillman without losing a tittle of his cool composure. Cavanari had negotiated the Treaty of Gundamuk, the real importance of which consisted in the Afghan acceptance of a British resident at Kabul. The honor the duty, and the danger naturally fell to him of being the first occupant of a post created mainly by his own mingled tact and strength. Many of his friends regarded him in the light of the leader of a forlorn hope, and probably Cavanari recognized with perfect clearness the risks which encompassed his embassy. But apart from mayhap, a little added gravity in his leave-takings when he quitted Simla, he gave no sign. It was not a very imposing mission at whose head he rode, into the Bala Hissar of Kabul on July 24, 1879. His companions were his secretary, Mr. William Jenkins, a young Scotsman of the Punjab Civil Service, Dr. Ambrose Kelly, the medical officer of the embassy, and the gallant, stalwart young lieutenant, W.R.P. Hamilton, V.C., commanding the modest escort of 75 soldiers of the guides. It was held that an escort so scanty was sufficient since the emir had pledged himself personally for the safety and protection of the mission. The envoy was received with high honor and conducted to the roomy quarters in the Bala Hissar, which had been prepared as the residency within easy distance of the emir's palace. Unquestionably, the mission was welcome neither to the Afghan ruler nor to the people, but Cavanari, writing to the viceroy, made the best of things. The arrival at the adjacent Sherpur cantonments of the Herat regiments in the beginning of August was extremely unfortunate for the mission. Those troops had been inspired by their commander, 
Ayub Khan with intense hatred to the English, and they marched through the cobble streets shouting objurgations against the British envoy and picking quarrels with the soldiers of his escort. A pensioned sepoy who had learned that the Afghan troops had been ordered to abuse the Elchi warned Kavanari of the danger signals. Kavanari's calm remark was, Dogs that bark don't bite. The old soldier earnestly urged, But these dogs do bite, and there is danger. Well, said Kavanari, They can only kill the handful of us here, and our death will be avenged. The days passed, and it seemed that Kavanari's diagnosis of the situation was the accurate one. The last words of his last message to the Viceroy, dispatched on September 2nd, were all well. The writer of those words was a dead man, and his mission had perished with him, almost as soon as the cheerful message borne along the telegraph wires reached its destination. In the morning of September 3rd, some Afghan regiments paraded without arms in the Bala Hissar to receive their pay. An installment was paid, but the soldiers clamored for arrears due. The demand was refused, a riot began, and the shout rose that the British Elchi might prove a free-handed paymaster. There was a rush toward the residency, and while some of the Afghan soldiers resorted to stone-throwing, others ran for arms to their quarters and looted the arsenal in the upper Balahisar. The residency gates had been closed on the first alarm, and fire was promptly opened on the rabble. The place was never intended for defense, commanded as it was at close range from the higher level of the arsenal, whence a heavy continuous fire was from the first board down. The mob of the city and their thousands hurried to cooperate with the mutinied soldiers and share in the spoils of the sack, so that the residency was soon besieged. As soon as the outbreak manifested itself, Cavignari had sent a message to the emir, and the communication admittedly reached the latter's hands. He had more than 2,000 troops in the Balahisar, still at least nominally loyal. He had guaranteed the protection of the mission, and it behooved him to do what in him lay to fulfill his pledge. But the emir sat supine in his palace, doing no more than send his general-in-chief, Daoud Shah, to remonstrate with the insurgents. Daoud Shah went on the errand, but it is questionable whether he showed any energy or indeed desired that the besiegers should desist. It was claimed by and for him that he was maltreated and indeed wounded by the mob, and it appears that he did ride into the throng and was forcibly dismounted. He might perhaps have exerted himself with greater determination if he had received more specific orders from his master, the emir. That feeble or treacherous prince never stirred. To the frequent urgent messages sent him by Lieutenant Hamilton, he replied vaguely, As God wills, I am making preparations. Meanwhile, the little garrison maintained with gallant staunchness hour after hour the all but hopeless defense. While the fighting was going on, reported the pensioner who had previously warned Kavanari, I myself saw the four European officers charge out at the head of some twenty-five of the garrison. They drove away a party holding some broken ground. When chased, the Afghan soldiers ran like sheep before a wolf. Later, another sally was made by a detachment, with but three officers at their head. Kevinari was not with them this time. A third sally was made with only two officers leading, Hamilton and Jenkins. And the last of the sallies was made by a Sikh Jemadar bravely leading. No more sallies were made after this. About noon the gates were forced and the residency building was fired, but the defenders long maintained their position on the roof 
and in a detached building. At length the fire did its work, the walls and roof fell in, and soon the fell deed was consummated by the slaughter of the last survivors of the ill-fated garrison. Hamilton was said to have died sword in hand in a final desperate charge. Tidings of the massacre were carried with great speed to Massey's outposts in the Karam Valley. The news reached Simla by telegraph early on the morning of the 5th. The authorities there rallied from the shock with fine purposeful promptitude, and within a few hours a telegram was on its way to General Massey's headquarters at Ali Kel, instructing him to occupy the crest of the Shutarguran Pass with two infantry regiments and a mountain battery, which force was to entrench itself there and await orders. The policy of which Lord Lytton was the figurehead had come down with a bloody crash, and the masterly inactivity of wise John Lawrence stood vindicated in the eyes of Europe and of Asia. But if his policy had gone to water, the viceroy, although he was soon to default from the constancy of his purpose, saw for the present clear before him the duty that now in its stead lay upon him of inflicting summary punishment on a people who had ruthlessly violated the sacred immunity from harm that shields alike among civilized and barbarous communities the person and suite of an ambassador accepted under the provisions of a deliberate treaty. Burns and McNaughton had met their fate because they had gone to cobble the supporters of a detested intruder and the unwelcome representatives of a hated power. But Cavanari had been slaughtered notwithstanding that he dwelt in the Bella Hassar residency in virtue of a solemn treaty between the Empress of India and the Emir of Afghanistan, notwithstanding that the latter had guaranteed him safety and protection, notwithstanding that Britain and Afghanistan had ratified a pledge of mutual friendship and reciprocal good offices. Lord Lytton recognized, at least for the moment, that no consideration of present expediency or of ulterior policy could intervene to deter him from the urgent imperative duty which now suddenly confronted him. The task, it was true, was beset with difficulties and dangers. The forces on the northwestern frontier had been reduced to a peace footing, and the transport for economical reasons had been severely cut down. The bitter Afghan winter season was approaching, during which military operations could be conducted only under extremely arduous conditions and when the line of communications would be liable to serious interruptions. The available troops for a prompt offensive did not amount to more than 6,500 men all told, and it was apparent that many circumstances might postpone their reinforcement. When men are in earnest, difficulties and dangers are recognized only to be coped with and overcome. When the Simla Council of War broke up on the afternoon of September 5th, the plan of campaign had been settled and the leader of the enterprise had been chosen. Sir Frederick Roberts was already deservedly esteemed one of the most brilliant soldiers of the British Army. He had fought with distinction all through the Great Mutiny, earning the Victoria Cross and rapid promotion. He had served in the Abyssinian Campaign of 1868 and been chosen by Napier to carry home his final dispatches. And he had worthily shared in the toil, fighting, and honors of the Umbela and Lushai expeditions. In his command of the Karam Field Force, during the winter of 1878 and 79, he had proved himself a skillful, resolute, and vigorous leader. The officers and men who served under him believed in him enthusiastically, and, what with soldiers is the convincing assurance of whole-souled confidence, they had bestowed on him an affectionate nickname, 
they knew him among themselves as Little Bobs. His administrative capacity he had proved in the post of Quartermaster General in India. Ripe in the experience of war, Roberts at the age of 47 was in the full vigor of manhood, alert in mind, and of tough and enduring physique. He was a very junior major general, but even among his seniors the conviction was general that Lord Lytton the Viceroy and Sir F. Haynes, the Commander-in-Chief, acted wisely in entrusting to him the most active command in the impending campaign. Our retention of the Karam Valley was to prove very useful in the emergency which had suddenly occurred. Its occupation enabled Massey to seize and hold the Shutar Guran, and the force in the valley was to constitute the nucleus of the little army of invasion and retribution to the command of which Sir Frederick Roberts was appointed. The apex at the Shutar Gudan of the salient angle into Afghanistan, which our possession of the Kuram Valley furnished, was within little more than fifty miles of Kabul, whereas the distance of that city from Lundi Kotul, our advanced position at the head of the Khyber Pass, was about one hundred forty miles and the route exceptionally difficult. Robert's column of invasion was to consist of a cavalry brigade commanded by Brigadier General Dunham Massey, and of two infantry brigades, the first commanded by Brigadier General McPherson, the second by Brigadier General Baker, three batteries of artillery, a company of sappers and miners, and two Gatling guns. The Karam Valley between the Shutar Gurdan and the base was to be garrisoned adequately by a force about 4,000 strong in protection of Robert's communications by that line until snow should close it, by which time it was anticipated that communication by the Khyber-Jalalabad-Gundamuk line would be opened up, for gaining and maintaining which a force of about 6,600 men was to be detailed under the command of Major General Bright, which was to furnish a movable column to establish communications onward to Kabul. A strong reserve force was to be gathered between Peshwar and Rawal Pindi under the command of Major General Ross to move forward as occasion might require. In the southwest, Sir Donald Stewart was to recall to Kandahar his troops, which, having begun their march toward India, were now mainly echeloned along the route to Quetta, when that general would have about 9,000 men at his disposition to dominate the Kandahar province reoccupy Kalat-e-Gilzai, and threaten Guzni, his communications with the Indus being kept open by a brigade of Bombay troops commanded by Brigadier General Fairy. Sir Frederick Roberts left Simla on E.T. September along with Colonel Charles McGregor, C.B., the brilliant and daring soldier whom he had chosen as Chief of Staff, and traveling night and day they reached Ali Kel on the 12th. The transport and supply difficulty had to be promptly met, and this was effected only by making a clean sweep of all the resources of the Peshawar district, greatly but unavoidably to the hindrance of the advance of the Khyber Column, and by procuring carriage and supplies from the friendly tribes of the Karam. Notwithstanding the most strenuous exertions, it was not until the 1st of October that Robert's little army, having crossed the Shutar Gurdan by detachments, was rendezvoused at and about the village of Kushi in the Logar Plain, within 48 miles of Kabul. Some sharp skirmishes had been fought as the troops traversed the rugged ground between Ali Kel and the Shutar Gurdan, but the losses were trivial, 
although the general himself had a narrow escape. A couple of regiments and four guns under the command of Colonel Money were left in an entrenched camp to hold the Shutar Gurdan. The massacre of the British mission had no sooner been perpetrated than Yakub Khan found himself in a very bad way. The Kabul Sirdars sided with the disaffected soldiery and urged the emir to raise his banner for a jihad or religious war, a measure for which he had no nerve. Nor had he the nerve to remain in Kabul until Robert should camp under the Balahisar and demand of him an account of the stewardship he had undertaken on behalf of the ill-fated Kavanari. What reasons actuated the anxious and bewildered man cannot precisely be known. Whether he was simply solicitous for his own wretched skin, whether he acted from a wish to save Cobble from destruction, or whether he hoped that his entreaties for delay might stay the British advance until the tribesmen should gather to bar the road to the capital. He resolved to fly from Cobble and commit himself to the protection of General Roberts and his army. The day before General Roberts arrived at Cushy, the emir presented himself in Baker's camp, accompanied by his eldest son and some of his sirdars, among whom was Daoud Shah, the commander-in-chief of his army. Sir Frederick, on his arrival at Cushy, paid a formal visit to the emir, which the latter returned the same afternoon and took occasion to plead that the general should delay his advance. The reply was that not even for a single day would Sir Frederick defer his march on Kabul. The emir remained in camp, his personal safety carefully protected, but under a species of honorable surveillance, until it should be ascertained judiciously whether or not he was implicated in the massacre of the mission. Yakub had intimated his intention of presenting himself in the British camp some days in the advance of his arrival, and as telegraphic communication with headquarters was open, his acceptance in the character of an honored guest was presumably in accordance with instructions from Simla. The man who made himself personally responsible for the safety of Cavanari's mission was a strange guest with an army whose avowed errand was to exact retribution for the crime of its destruction. It might seem not unreasonable to expect that, as an indispensable preliminary to his entertainment, he should have at least afforded some prima facie evidence that he had been zealous to avert the fate which had befallen the mission, and stern in the punishment of an atrocity which touched him so nearly. But instead, he was taken on trust so fully that Afghans resisting the British advance were not so much regarded as enemies resisting an invasion and as constructive vindicators of the massacre as they were held traitors to their sovereign harboring in the British camp. On the morning of October 2nd, the whole force marched from Kushi toward Kabul, temporarily cutting loose from communication with the Shutar Gudan to avoid diminishing the strength of the column by leaving detachments to keep the road open. All told, Robert's army was the reverse of a mighty host. Its strength was little greater than that of a Prussian brigade on a war footing. Its fate was in its own hands, for befall it what might, it could hope for no timely reinforcement. It was a mere detachment marching against a nation of fighting men plentifully supplied with artillery, no longer shooting laboriously with gisales, but carrying arms of precision equal or little inferior to those in the hands of our own soldiery. But the men, Europeans and Easterns, hillmen of Scotland and hillmen of Nepal, plainmen of Hampshire and plainmen of Punjab, 
strode along buoyant with confidence and with health, believing in their leader, in their discipline, in themselves. Of varied race, no soldier who followed Roberts but came of fighting stock. Ever blithely rejoicing in the combat, one and all burned for the strife now before them with more than wanted ardor, because of the opportunity it promised to exact vengeance for a deed of foul treachery. The soldiers had not long to wait for the first fight of the campaign. On the afternoon of the 5th, Baker's brigade, with most of the cavalry and artillery, and with the 92nd Highlanders belonging to McPherson's brigade, camped on the plain to the south of the village of Charasia. McPherson remaining one march in rear to escort the convoy of ammunition and stores. North of Charasia rises a semicircular curtain of hills sending in three successive tiers, the most distant and loftiest range closing in the horizon and shutting out the view of Kabul, distant only about 11 miles. The leftward projection of the curtain, as one looks northward, comes down into the plain almost as far as, and somewhat to the left of, Charasia, dividing the valley of Charasia from the outer plain of Charday. To the right front of Charasia, distant from it about three miles, the range is cleft by the rugged and narrow Sung-e-Nawishta Pass, through which run the Logar River and the direct road to Kabul by Beni Hisar. Information had been received that the Afghans were determined on a resolute attempt to prevent the British force from reaching Kabul, and the position beyond Charasia seemed so tempting that it was regarded as surprising that cavalry reconnaissances sent forward on three distinct roads detected no evidences of any large hostile gathering. But next morning showed another sight. At dawn on the 6th, General Roberts, anxious to secure the Sungi-Nawishta Pass, and to render the track through it passable for guns, sent forward his pioneer battalion with a wing of the 92nd and two mountain guns. The detachment had gone out no great distance when the spectacle before it gave it pause. From the Sung-e-Nawishta defile, both sides of which were held, the semicircular sweep of the hill crests was crowned by an Afghan host in great strength and regular formation. According to subsequent information, no fewer than 13 regiments of the Afghan regular army took part in the combat, as well as large contingents of irregular fighting men from Kabul and the adjoining villages, while the British camp was threatened from the heights on either side by formidable bodies of tribesmen, to thwart whose obviously intended attack on it a considerable force had to be retained. The dispositions of the Afghan commander Nek Mahmed Khan were made with some tactical skill. The Sungi Nawishta Pass itself, the heights on either side, and a low detached eminence further forward were strongly held by Afghan infantry. In the mouth of the pass were four Armstrong guns, and on the flanking height twelve mountain guns were in position. The projecting spur towards Charasia, which was the extreme right of the Afghan position, was held in force whence an effective fire would bear on the left flank of a force advancing to a direct attack on the pass. But Roberts was not the man to play into the hands of the Afghan tactician. He humored his conception so far as to send forward on his right toward the pass a small detachment of all arms under Major White of the 92nd, with instructions to maintain a threatening attitude in that direction, and to seize the opportunity to cooperate with the flanking movement entrusted to General Baker as soon as its development should have shaken the constancy of the enemy. 
to Baker, with about 2,000 infantry and four guns, was assigned the task of attacking the Afghan right on the projecting spur and ridge, forcing back and dispersing that flank. And then, having reached the right of the Afghan main position on the farthest and loftiest range, he was to wheel to his right and sweep its defenders from the chain of summits. Baker moved out toward his left front against the eminences held by the Afghan right wing, which Nek Mahmed, having discerned the character of Roberts's tactics, was now reinforcing with great activity. The 72nd Highlanders led the attack, supported vigorously by the 5th Urkas and the 5th Punjab Infantry. The resistance of the Afghans was stubborn, especially opposite our extreme left, whence from behind their sungas on a steep hill they poured a heavy fire on the assailants. A yet heavier fire came from a detached knoll on Baker's right, which the artillery fire gradually beat down. The Afghans continued to hold the advanced ridge constituting their first position until 2 o'clock, when a direct attack, accompanied by a double flanking fire, compelled their withdrawal. They, however, fell back only to an intermediate loftier position about 700 yards in the rear of the ridge from which they had been driven. Approached by successive rushes under cover of artillery fire, they were then attacked vigorously and fell back in confusion. No rally was permitted them, and by three o'clock the whole Afghan right was shattered and in full flight along the edge of the Charday Valley. Baker, unfortunately, had no cavalry, else the fugitives would have suffered severely. But the rout of the Afghan right had decided the fortune of the day. Its defenders were already dribbling away from the main position when Baker, wheeling to his right, marched along the lofty crest, rolling up and sweeping away the Afghan defense as he moved toward the Songi Nawishta Gorge. That defile had already been entered by the cavalry of White's detachment, supported by some infantry. While Baker had been turning the Afghan right, White and his little force had been distinguishing themselves not a little. After an artillery preparation, the detached hill had been won as the result of a hand-to-hand struggle. Later had fallen into the hands of White's people all the Afghan guns, and the heights to the immediate right and left of the gorge had been carried, the defenders driven away, and the pass opened up. But the progress through it of the cavalry was arrested by a strongly garrisoned fort completely commanding the road. On this fort, Baker directed his artillery fire, at the same time sending down two infantry regiments to clear away the remnants of the Afghan army still lingering in the pass. This accomplished, the fighting ceased. It had been a satisfactory day. Less than half of Robert's force had been engaged, and this mere brigade had routed the army of Kabul and captured the whole of the artillery it had brought into the field. The Afghan loss was estimated at about 300 killed. The British loss was 20 killed and 67 wounded. On the night of the combat, part of Baker's troops bivouacked beyond the Sungi Nawishta, and on the following day the whole division passed the defile and camped at Beni Hisar, within sight of the Bala Hisar and the lofty ridge overhanging Kabul. On the afternoon of the 7th, a violent explosion was heard in the Beni Hisar camp from the direction of the Shurpur cantonment north of Kabul, near the site of the British cantonments of 1839-41. to Next morning, information came in that the Shurpur magazine had been blown up, and that the cantonment 
had been abandoned by the Afghan regiments which had garrisoned that vast, unfinished structure. General Massey led out part of his brigade on a reconnaissance and took possession of the deserted Sherpur cantonment and of the 75 pieces of ordnance parked within the walls. Massey had observed from the Sia Sung Heights that the Asmai Heights, overhanging the Kabul suburb of Day Afghan, were held by a large body of Afghan soldiery, a force, it was afterwards learned, composed of the remnants of the regiments defeated at Charasia, three fresh regiments from the Kohistan, and the rabble of the city and adjacent villages, having a total strength of nearly 3,000 men, with 12 guns, under the leadership of Mahmed Jan, who later was to figure prominently as the ablest of our Afghan enemies. Massey heliographed his information to General Roberts, who sent Baker with a force to drive the enemy from the heights, and Massey was instructed to pass through a gap in the ridge and gain the Charday Valley, where he might find opportunity to intercept the Afghan retreat toward the west. Massey pierced the ridge at the village of Aushar and disposed his troops on the roads crossing the Charday Valley. Meanwhile, Baker found the ascent of the Sherdurwaza Heights so steep that the afternoon was far spent before his guns came into action, and it was still later before part of his infantry effected their descent into the Charday Valley. Reinforcements necessary to enable him to act did not reach him until dusk, when it would have been folly to commit himself to an attack. A night patrol ascertained that the Afghans had evacuated the position under cover of darkness, leaving behind their guns and camp equipage. On the 9th, the divisional camp moved forward to the Sia Sung Heights, a mile eastward from the Balahisar, and there it was joined by Baker and by Massey, who on his way to camp led his weary troopers through the city of Kabul without mishap or insult. The Gurkha regiment was detached to hold the ridge commanding the Balahisar, and a cavalry regiment was quartered in the Shurpur cantonment to protect it from the ravages of the villagers. A melancholy interest attaches to the visit paid by Sir Frederick Roberts to the Bala Hisar on the 11th. Through the dirt and squalor of the lower portion, he ascended the narrow lane leading to the ruin, which a few weeks earlier had been the British residency. The commander of the avenging army looked with sorrowful eyes on the scene of heroism and slaughter, on the smoke-blackened walls, the blood splashes on the whitewashed walls, the still smoldering debris, the half-burned skulls and bones in the blood-dabbled chamber where apparently the final struggle had been fought out. He stood in the great breach in the quarters of the guides where the gate had been blown in after the last of the sorties made by the gallant Hamilton and lingered in the tattered wreck of poor Cavanari's drawing room, its walls dented with bullet pits, its floor and walls brutally defiled. Next day, he made a formal entry into the Balahisar, his road lined with his staunch troops, a royal salute greeting the banner of Britain as it rose on the tall flagstaff above the gateway. He held a durbar in the audience chamber, in the garden of the emir's palace. In front and in flank of him, the pushing throng of obsequious surdars of Kabul arrayed in all the colors of the rainbow. Behind them, standing immobile at attention, the guard of British infantry with fixed bayonets, which the soldiers longed to use. The general read the mild proclamation announcing the disarmament of the Kabulese and the punishment of fine, which was laid upon the city, but which never was exacted. 
and then he summarily dismissed the Sirdars, three only, the Mustafi Yahuja Khan, the emir's father-in-law, and Zachariah Khan, his brother, being desired to remain. Their smug complacency was suddenly changed into dismay when they were abruptly told that they were prisoners. Another ceremonial progress the general had to perform. On the 13th, he marched through the streets of Kabul at the head of his little army, the bazaars and dead walls echoing to the music of the bands and the wild scream of the bagpipes. In the Afghan quarter, no salams greeted the conquering Ferengis, and scowling faces frowned on the spectacle from windows and side streets. Three days later occurred an event which might have been a great catastrophe. Captain Shafto of the Ordnance was conducting an examination into the contents of the arsenal in the upper Balahisar, and had already discovered millions of cartridges and about 150,000 pounds of gunpowder. Daoud Shah, however, expressed his belief that at least a million pounds were in store. Captain Shafto, a very cautious man, was pursuing his researches. The Gurkhas were quartered in the upper Balahisar near the magazine shed, and the 67th occupied the emir's garden lower down. On the 16th, a dull report was heard in the Sia Sung camp, followed immediately by the rising above the Balahisar of a huge column of gray smoke, which, as it drifted away, disclosed flashes of flame and sudden jets of smoke telling of repeated gunpowder explosions. The 67th, powdered with dust, escaped all but scatheless, but the Gurkha regiment had been heavily smitten. Twelve poor fellows were killed and seven wounded. Among the former were five principal Gurkha officers. The Balahisar was promptly evacuated. Occasional explosions occurred for several days, the heaviest of those on the afternoon of the 16th which threw on the city a great shower of stones, beams, and bullets. By a jet of stones blown out through the Balahisar gate, four Afghans were killed, and two Sowars and an Afghan badly hurt. Captain Shafto's body and the remains of the Gurkhas were found later and buried, and the determination was formed to have no more to do with the Balahisar, but to occupy the Shurpur cantonment. Meanwhile, General Hugh Goh was dispatched with a small force of all arms to escort to Kabul Money's gallant garrison of the Shutar Gurdan and to close for the winter the line of communication via the Karam Valley. Colonel Money had undergone with fine soldierly spirit and action not a few turbulent experiences since Roberts had left him and his Sikhs on the lofty crest of Shutar Gurdan. The truculent Gil's eyes gave him no peace. His method of dealing with him was for the most part with the bayonet point. The last attempt on him was made by a horde of Gil's eyes some 17,000 strong, who completely invested his camp, and, after the civility of requesting him to surrender, a compliment which he answered by bullets, made a close and determined attack on his position. This was on the 18th of October. On the following day, Go heliographed his arrival at Kushi, whereupon Money took the offensive with vigor and scattered to the winds his Gilzai assailants. On the 30th of October, the Shutar Gudan position was evacuated, and on the 3rd of November, the Kabul force received the welcome accession of headquarters and two squadrons of 9th Lancers, Money's 3rd Sikhs, 
and four mountain guns. End of section two.